ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hi there, I'm Selena Green and welcome to another week of The Country Hour. Now, can you send me your rainfall figures today, please? Because I'm keen to know where it's fallen, if it's still falling, how much. I've been hearing some of you been getting some rumbles of thunder today and I've heard that there's just been some hail around Port Pirie as well, so still plenty of weather happening out there. Uh, let me know just what you've tipped out of the gauge. My talkback number is 1300 222891. And the text line is 0467 or you can just text or call in straight from the ABC Listen app if you're using it that way to listen into the program today. In a moment, you'll hear more about that summer rain across the state. And it looks like there's plenty of Australian barley heading overseas. We went back to some of our traditional markets as well, albeit probably at a discount. So I think it's it's that constant need for industry and government to you know, continue to bring down the barriers on those high-value markets, make sure growers are getting as much in the back pocket as they possibly can. That's to come. But first today, it's uh, well, better say it was wet over the weekend. That's probably an understatement for some of you. People across the state have been checking the rain gauges with some regions receiving more than 100 millimetres of rain over the weekend. At Cleve, the Yadogni Weir overflowed for the first time in nearly 30 years. Locals excited to see so much water. Mark Turnbull lives across from the Weir and he spoke with Brooke Nindorf about the rain that's been coming down since Friday night. Oh, it's just been steady started Saturday morning, a little bit overnight Friday, but mostly Saturday and all day Sunday and, and the night between. When did you notice that you don't anywhere was starting to uh, to overflow? Well, uh, as soon as it rains in Cleve, people go out to see whether there's um, any, any water in the weir, and then normally not. I was always a bit there, but uh, I went up there after a few cars were driven in and out, and I, um, it was running at a, a little steady stream, and then I went up a few hours later, and it was a fairly decent sort of stream when when I could see the weir was rising fairly quickly. And then I invited my family to come and down and have a look and thinking it'd be overflowing this morning, but it was rising so quickly that it overflowed at 8 o'clock last night. So how much rain has there been there for that to, to happen? Uh, so we've had um, 124 mils um, over a couple of days. And so for those that don't know, Mark, what does the Udalkney Weir actually mean for the, the town of Cleve? It was put there in about 1913, and it only it was designed to, to feed Arna Bay. Um, the, the pipes never went to Cleve because Cleve's higher, so gravity fed through Arna Bay to Arna Bay and Varen direction, and and then linked up with the the system was um, at Cow. But um, there were three weirs built, and this one was the most reliable one. But they were all sort of linked. And so, where does this water that's overflowing now? Where where does that go? Uh, that that gravitates down the Yildalkney Creek and um, the floodway by the Oval at Arna Bay, that's where it comes out and eventually runs out through the, the tidal creek at Arna Bay. So how long has it been since it has flowed over, Mark? Uh, the last time it overflowed was in January 1993. Um, that's when the kids were starting to go to school, the first day of school, and the road was cut. 
that rain, we had 90 mils that time, but we'd had this time of year in 92, we'd had 120 mils and, and, and that overflowed and stayed full all through the summer. And then January, we had another rain and that's the last time it overflowed. In January 93, probably over a few days. So almost 30 years. Yeah, and so what, what was it like seeing it uh, overflow, Mark? What, what was the uh, what was the feeling like uh, amongst people that were looking at it? Oh, there was probably about sixty people there, half children, I suppose, and the children squealed when it started <laughs> to trickle over. And then uh, yeah, everyone sort of was a bit excited. And then I was saying, oh, I saw this so many years ago, and this woman with a child said, I wasn't even born then. <laughs> Home for me because I've seen it a lot. So I, I used to live next to it, and then I moved away to another farm, and I lived back here again. But um, in the, in years gone by, um, it used the locals were saying was it filled filled and overflowed every seven years. But it's filled a lot in the last few years, but um, it's stopped within a metre of the top, but hasn't overflowed since '93. But before '93, it used to overflow a bit. That's when you used to yeah, see it. Yeah, uh, the biggest. The biggest fall, um, I think it was the biggest fall that's gone into it, was in 1977, same time of year again. And, and at that point, it was the, we had five inches of rain and it filled in five hours. And um, that was a massive rain. And, and the creeks um, overflowed their banks and there was gum trees going in for him going into it. And, and that debris still there, really. So, Mark, how many times would this weir have been completely dry? Uh, not very, not very often. It gets very close, and 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 last time it was dry was in um, 2020, and um, there was about six foot of mud in the bottom. There's a measure up the side, and it's 37 foot wall, and there was about six foot of mud. So I reckon it'd still be about that same level now. And so, um, how long do you think that rain will, will stick around in the the weir, um, Mark? Oh, the, oh, it'll it'll. it'll I think it'll hold fairly well because it filled. It um, there's a big aquifer under this weir and, and it empties itself fairly quickly. But in wet periods, I think once that aquifer um, fills up, it it stays fairly full because uh, it when it was built, it overflowed and then they built a little weir below it to catch it, and that was actually where they took the water off to service the district. So. Um, that, that overflow after last time, I mean that seepage after last time, it it didn't seep for very long, and so I reckon it was filling aquifer, and um, I, I think it'll stay fairly full for you know the most of the year. You know it'll be it'll gradually go down, but if we have a wet winter, it might be level up fairly high. And what what are the roads in that like around the place, Mark? Are they uh, I saw that um, the road between Cleve and Cow is, is open again. Yes, um, been steady, so the. Um, there hasn't been a really massive quick runoff, but uh, out in the Clave Hills, there'd be still water running across the roads and there'd be a bit of damage there, I think. We've got a property at um, Colony and we've had 156 mils there over the same period. Wow. When when was the last time you saw, saw rain like this? Oh, we sort of get it every now and again, but it's usually <laughs> with um, quickness. But yeah, I did tell the children, I said, you got better go and have a look at this because it doesn't happen very often. And have most people finished harvest around the area, Mark? Yeah, yeah, I think just about everyone's finished. We've been finished for a month. We started so early. And so, what does this this rain mean now? Is this good for for a bit of subsoil moisture heading into next year? Oh, yeah, it'd be excellent. Um, the, um, the we we had um, a bit of rain a couple of inches a fortnight ago, so that's got the weeds started, and 
but it's only just starting to green a bit, so everyone will be flat out spraying. That'll be the next thing, the big job of spraying. Yeah. I, I, I heard that the, the chemical company's a bit unprepared for it because of such a long, dry period leading up to the, this stage. Mark, yeah. you've also got um, pastoral property as well up, up towards Wyala. How was the rain up that way? What sort of numbers did you get up there? Well, I haven't been up there to measure it, but we've been watching um, cameras on the, on their dams and, and troughs and, and we could see floodwaters running past the troughs and then we saw the water running into the dams and, and, and they filled very quickly and there was pretty sort of... You don't like to watch dams filling that quickly because you feel that they might go over the back, but they all filled and you could see them bypassing and my neighbours have all filled their dams up there too. That must be pretty exciting for those those pastoral areas. Yeah, well, most of them go out too soon and get bogged, but uh, <laughs> we'll be going up there shortly to see how we've gone. That's Mark Turnbull there from Cleve, and he was speaking to Brooke Nindorf. A few rainfall figures coming through, and, yeah, as it is with some of these systems, a bit of a mixed bag depending on where you go. A couple of texts that have come in from the Loxton area. Chris is in Loxton, says zero rain here. Looked like rain, and, and that was it. Uh, and Barry's in Loxton East. He says no rain in Loxton, 0.2 mils on Friday. Uh, Eva, uh, sorry, Evan is from Sanderlands and said 66 mils as of 7 a.m. this morning, and that's from Friday evening. Uh, at Evan's place. And then Nathan gave us a call from Gomasol and said uh, he's gotten 31 mils of rain. So what's uh, been falling at your place? Is it still falling? That talkback number 1300 222 or send me a text on 0467 922 Now it's been four months since China dropped its 80% tariff on Australian barley. Sean Cole from Grain Growers says exporters have sent more than 400,000 tonnes of grain so far. And he tells Megan Hughes that while they're glad to get the premium price, he wants to keep up trade to the new markets they've developed. The grain markets go up and down as a previous trader. You know, we we all know uh, too well and growers know very well how volatile the markets are. But generally the premium we get um, is there into China because... Australian growers grow some of the best barley in the world um, when compared to other competitors uh, such as Canada and Europe. So that premium is there because China uh, is predominantly a, a brewer as well. So even a lot of the feed barley that gets exported may ultimately be used in a in a brewing process in China. So that that's a strong premium. And similar to the Mexico market, that was fantastic work with industry and Australian government working with the ATMAC program and grants there. Um, helping us find another premium market there during during the tariff, and I think that's that's probably the message as well. In the good times, we we still need government and industry still needs to invest in those other relationships because when when trade is volatile and we do have trading sort of impediments from time to time, we've got other markets to fall back onto, and it, it makes it not as hard for growers uh, to bounce back. So how much grain was actually going down to Mexico? I haven't got the exact numbers with me, but it, we managed to forge a lot more than we had traditionally because uh, Mexico had, had quite a high barrier to entry previously. So through the through the government's work and the trade, I believe Mexico had a 115% tariff, which basically was removed and reduced to allow Australia to then trade to Mexico. And that was a result of joining the CPTPP agreement. It's really about you know, government continuing and the trade working hand in hand with government and therefore growers benefiting from, you know, reduced reduced tariffs. And I think around the whole uh, globe at the moment, we're seeing increased um, protectionism. So that's something that government actively needs to push against and make make sure that we're opening all of the, all of the pathways into as many markets as we possibly can. China's very important, but it's only one of many um, markets that, you know, we should be keeping in mind when we're exporting not only barley, but all grains. 
And that trade into Mexico, that was for beer alcohol production or was that for livestock feed? I, b- I believe it was mainly for yeah, beer production. Some may have been used for feed, but because of the high quality nature of Australian barley in general, a lot of it is suitable for, for beer production. It will malt um, due to its very high quality parameters. So, um, yeah, but barley has some technical specifications, especially around protein that people look for when they're, when they're malting. So it's going to be a certain band. But it's, yeah, it's definitely of a very high quality and, and definitely germinates because we've also got a very good supply chain here and, and storage systems. And other than Mexico, were there any other countries that Australian barley was being sent to? I think we went back to a few of our, our old sort of friends internationally. So Saudi Arabia, that's particularly a, a feed market, obviously not a large beer uh, consumer there. But uh, yeah, we, we, we went back to some of our traditional markets as well, albeit probably at a discount um, or very likely at a discount. So I think it's it's that constant need for industry and government to you know continue to bring down the barriers on those high high value markets, make sure growers are getting as much in their back pocket as they possibly can and also ensuring that all all the taps are open for growers um, when it comes to selling their produce. Are people looking to planting next year and thinking, oh, you know, I can put in a bit more barley because I know that this premium price, this Chinese market is now open? Mm, certainly. I, th- I think we're going to see a, a fairly big swing into barley, Megan. Um, obviously, ABEARS and other government organisations have their numbers too, but when you look just at the pure price premium that we recovered, say, you know, the main trading standard is looking at the discount or premium of barley to wheat. So prior to the uh, tariff coming in, we had barley trading at a closer, more less of a discount to wheat. And when the tariff came on, that widened out again. And now we're back we're back to something more reasonable. And that, that is the main price signal um, if growers plant barley or not. I think we will see more acres or hectares going in the new money, sorry, but I think as well it's barley as we're going to a dry period as well as a good, usually a good trick to have in the in the hat in terms of uh, drought resilience or reduced moisture. And um, yeah, barley, barley obviously has some of the, you know, can, can survive with some of the lower rainfall um, that we might see in the next 12 months. At Sean Cole there from Grain Growers and he was speaking to Megan Hughes. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Where it is 19 minutes past 12. Well, this year some farmers have finished harvesting this year's grain earlier when and when they started reaping last year. It means many more families will be sitting around the Christmas table instead of sitting in the header this festive season. One of those who's finished harvest early is Alex McGorman, who farms at Sanderson in the Mid-Murray. Eliza Bellage visited him, visited him last week while the header was rolling through the last of his barley. I've been farming for home for 28 years, I believe, and that would be the earliest. I reckon probably three or four times we started in October uh, otherwise. So, no, it was very early. Well, it stopped raining. Well, it didn't get much in August. June was wet. July didn't have to be wet and didn't get much in August. Nothing in September or October. So, yeah, we got started about then. So did you feel ready to go or were you just waiting, like itching to go? Well, I planned on the headers being ready to go those first couple of days of um, November. We did actually do the bad thing, started on a Friday afternoon because I sent one of our blokes, we had two headers ready to go out of our three and sent them across the road just to have a, have a test, didn't think it was going to be quite ready and oh, she's ready to go so we got into it that weekend. And so it's one of the earliest harvests that you've experienced living and working here? Yeah, yeah, so uh, it's um, 
about as early. So we would have actually finished on the 25th of November, but 23rd of November we got an inch, and then another week later we got another two inches of rain, and uh, yeah, we're just getting going now. So with the fifth, um, we should finish tomorrow. It's not really a lot left to go. So what did that mean for your crops machinery and operations, having that bit of extra rain? Uh, you know, did it delay things? Did you have to wait for things to dry out? Yeah, we had to wait for it to dry out. We didn't push it too much because we didn't have a great deal left, so we haven't got much left. And we're we're in an area that's fairly low rainfall and better yields along the hills. And as you go out further, the yields back off. So we've picked on there, left our worst crops to last. And yeah, we're just finishing those off now. And how have your crops been looking this year? Quite amazing. For we had a five and a half inches in the growing re- season rainfall, so we've wrapped up to 10, 10 bags, so two ton crops up to down to a couple of bags. Canola and lentils were probably a bit disappointing, but you can't expect a great deal. Um, we did have one canola crop go a ton, so that was not too bad. But overall, it's below, well below, but not no disaster considering, yeah, five and a half inches of rain in rainfall, then we got three inches and just kind of ruin a perfectly good drought. That's why I looked at this last little bit of rain. You know, you're going to be finished up today, you were saying. What, what will that mean for the next few weeks and for your Christmas period? Well, compared to last year, we actually, actually in the paddock I'm standing, we finished reaping this on the 1st of January last year. Saying that, we last year it was that wet. We cut hay here and then regrowed, regrew five bag oats crop. Well, this year we're not even going to reap. Well, it might be about a five bag crop out there, four or five bag. It's um pretty ordinary. I mean, it's all clean. It's just lacking rainfall. Yeah, normally you might finish on the first. Does that mean you usually, you, you and your staff might be in the header then around Christmas time? Uh, well, what we're aiming, pro- probably generally, a normal season will start the first week of November, end of the first week of November, something like that, and probably finish second week of December. Because the crops didn't yield as much and there's no green in the crops, so good reaping. Yeah, we got, got over it fairly quick this year. So it does give us a few more weeks to, you know, get all the straw in. We were on a feedlot. That's our major business, and so carton sheep, carton grain, carton hay all around, and give people yeah a bit more time off over Christmas. And how excited, or you know, how has it been? How's the mood been amongst the staff and, and your wife and your family, um, knowing that you're getting the crops off yeah well before Christmas? Oh, it's good. Yeah, Christmas we can plan to go away. Where last year we were still harvesting over the Christmas period, and it's always tough over the Christmas period. So many businesses closed down. So if you do have breakdowns, it's it's painful. So not having to worry about that um, is a bonus but yeah we would have liked the season to go longer and get some decent yields we've been in an area that hasn't had much of a run lately but well we'll must be due next year and this three inches of rain in the last week does put some moisture down for next year so you said you're sort of feeling some of the effects of the drought but then that last week kind of threw it a bit yeah well it had been really dry there was no soil moisture left whatsoever so the crops used every bit of that it was quite amazing this year if the soil was good and everything was right, we grew some pretty reasonable crops. As soon as the soil was harder or too sandy or something was off, yeah, we didn't have any, any sort of result. And do you think you'll be seeing harvest happening earlier and earlier? It had been, but I thought it was getting earlier earlier than last year. It was It was the third week in November we started. So, yeah, I'm not a big... There is some sort of climate change happening, I believe, but I'm not saying it's happening in the big areas. Yeah, it's been pretty amazing seeing some of the guys in the EP finish up in uh, mid mid to early October as well. Oh, yeah, that was ridiculous in September going over that way and seeing them get harvesting early September over further. So, yeah, yeah they got a fair break, those guys. That is farmer Alex McGorman, and he was speaking there to Eliza Berlage at Sanderston.
Uh, it is 24 minutes past 12. You're with Selena Green on this Monday. A few more rainfall figures that have come through. Chris is west of Narra Court in the southeast and says 20. It was a rain in Chris's gauge. Thank you. Hello to Yvonne who says uh, 50 mils of rain at Venus Bay for the weekend. Good light, continuous rain with little wind. Yvonne says, I think they had more further inland. Well, someone who'd have a pretty good idea or certainly better idea than me of how much rain has fallen. Uh, so head to John Fisher, our forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. Hello. G'day, Selena. Uh, yeah, it certainly doesn't feel like summer depending on where you are today. Ah, uh, exactly. Yeah, no, it's uh, very different across the, the state and uh, certainly hasn't felt like summer over the last few days. So, yeah, I guess what's been causing all of this is uh, this developing low pressure system, which has formed uh, across the bite at the moment, and this broad trough uh, situated across the state. So that's obviously uh, resulted in some widespread rainfall over the weekend. So it really started to pick up through Saturday um, with that uh, broad band situated uh, kind of northwest, southeast across the state. And and then uh, the focus shifted across towards Air Peninsula uh, as we moved through Sunday, but still parts of the, the mid-north and uh, Flinders as well and up through the pastorals had some uh, quite uh, large totals. And look, uh, I don't have time to read all the numbers out, but uh, just, just picking a few of the more significant ones, uh, Selena, over the last few days, it looks like Cowell on eastern Air Peninsula uh, ha- is the highest for the state, picking up 125 millimetres, uh, not too far behind Winter Springs, 118, Cleve, 106. Thanks. Uh, and we also had Woodner um, there over in the west coast pick up uh, 80 uh, millimetres uh, up into the pastorals, Lake Everard, uh, 90 millimetres there. Um, and yeah, elsewhere, uh, Kadena, 91 millimetres as well. So some pretty significant rainfall totals for summer, mm-hmm. probably, you know, two or three or more times the, the monthly average for, for many parts. Um, but, uh, yeah, we have seen that uh, flood watch be, uh, be finalised this morning, um, so no, no further flooding expected, but uh, obviously still a fair bit of water lying around. Um, and, uh, yeah, the flood watch and severe weather warning both, uh, both cancelled. Uh, other features of note for this system have been the winds. So we had some quite significant winds through the Mount Lofty Ranges, Adelaide metropolitan area, lots of trees down this morning, um, even some structural damage there by the looks. So um, that was quite significant, but uh, that, that warning has also eased. Uh, but for the remainder of today, uh, we're looking at the thunderstorms being the feature of note. So we've currently got a thunderstorm warning uh, out for the northern parts of York Peninsula, the mid-north up into the Flinders, uh, and that's for some damaging wind potential and also... So heavy rain, um, oh, sorry, a large hail actually, um, but uh, we could see some, some local bursts of heavy rain with that as well. Uh, and that band does continue across York Peninsula down towards Kangaroo Island, but uh, yeah, the warning is just current for, for those northern areas. Um, but yeah, it's that central and eastern parts of the state where the focus is going to be this afternoon for those thunderstorms. Um, and we, yeah, we could see some, some quite intense thunderstorms as we move through the afternoon. So certainly keep an eye on, on those warnings um, as they progress through the day. And then, yeah, through the far eastern parts of the state, uh, while it's kind of milder uh, with the cloud and, and rain through central and western parts, the, the far eastern parts are pretty much clear at the moment. We're heading for uh, temperatures, uh, you know, to the high 30s, if not nudging 40 degrees for parts of the Riverland and Murrayland. So, uh, yeah, very different story over there. And we've got a fire weather warning for the Murraylands current. So, 
um, lots of weather happening. Um, and as we move through the next couple of days, though, we're going to see a gradual easing in that trend. So the, the, the weather patterns aren't moving too fast. Uh, we're still going to see that low in place over the uh, the bite there for uh, at least kind of 24, 48 hours to come. And this broad trough triggering further showers and thunderstorms. So, uh, uh, yeah, as we look at a accumulation over the next few days, uh, probably through that central part, so uh, Mar uh, Mount Lofty Ranges, York Peninsula, KI, Mid-North, Flinders, uh, could be in store for another kind of 10 to 30 millimetres uh, and maybe even some local falls up to 50 millimetres and uh, elsewhere probably looking at uh, around the 2 to 10 millimetre mark for uh, southern and western parts of the agricultural area and the, the far west coast, Selena. All right, thanks for that, John. John Fisher there from the Weather Bureau. The forecast for tomorrow for the western inland of New South Wales for the upper western sunny conditions for the lower western mostly sunny with a slight chance of a shower near the South Australian border and near zero chance elsewhere. There is a chance of a thunderstorm in the far west in the late afternoon and evening as well. Overnight temperatures in both districts will fall to the low to mid-20s with daytime temperatures reaching around 40 degrees. It is coming up to half past 12 here on the country hour in this next half an hour. Where do you reckon would be the worst places in South Australia when it comes to mobile phone coverage or trying to get a good data connection? Uh, well, one part of the state is about to get a lot better coverage. But where else could things be fixed up? We'll have a look at that. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Hello there. What do you reckon? Well, which parts of South Australia do you reckon have the worst mobile phone coverage? Let me know on my talkback number, which is 1300 991 or send me a text on 0467 991. I ask because one region in South Australia is about to get more than $20 million spent on a heap of new mobile phone towers. It's going to be a big win for the agriculture industries in particular that have been crying out for better connectivity. It's come about via a unique partnership between one telco, the local councils, government and industry. So could this type of thing be rolled out elsewhere across the state? I'd be keen to know from you, where do you reckon should be the first cab off the rank really needs something like this looked at? Also coming up with everything that Mother Nature has been throwing at our state of late and talking about the rain that uh, some of you have got over the weekend and are still getting this morning, hearing from the Weather Bureau, uh, some parts of the state getting over 100 mils of rain. I just got a text through on my text line that says quite a few gauges with 100 plus mils for, uh, of rain for the weekend. West and northwest of Sejuna, up to 135 mils of rain. Just some astounding summer rainfalls. How are things looking for our stone fruit growers? Nature has a habit of throwing all sorts of little challenges at you, uh, especially in the stone fruit growing field, and it, uh, it really tests you out. But um, the overall, you mentioned the juicy fruit, that's what people love to, to eat, and that's what we do it for. And will you be getting plenty of that juicy stone fruit from South Australian growers this summer? We'll find out before this half an hour is up. But first, here's Matt Coleman with the news. Hi, Matt. 
Hello, Selina. In the news this afternoon, the SES has received more than 300 calls today as many people continue to deal with extreme weather overnight and this morning. More than 30,000 customers are without power around SA due to storms, with many being in Adelaide's east and northeast. The Treasurer Stephen Mulligan says the state budget is under pressure from increased government borrowing and rising interest rates. The government is on track to reach just under $38 billion worth of debt within the next four years, in part due to big infrastructure spends on the North-South Corridor and the new Women's and Children's Hospital. And obstetric patients at Victor Harbour South Coast Hospital will be sent elsewhere for several weeks due to the hospital not having an on-call anaesthetist. The disruptions are from now until December the 18th at 8am and then Christmas Eve at midnight until January the 3rd at 8am. During those periods most expecting mothers will be transferred to the Mount Barker Soldiers Memorial Hospital. More news at one o'clock. Thanks Matt for those headlines. Well, the state's southeast is about to become one of the most connected parts of our state with a $15 million federal government investment in improving mobile coverage. 27 new mobile base stations will be installed throughout the region, expanding the 4G coverage by almost 2,500 square kilometres. This has come about via a unique partnership involving the state's forestry, fishing and key farming groups, along with Telstra, local councils and now both state and federal funding. The South Australian government had earlier promised $5.5 million towards the project. Now with the federal government funding confirmed, Premier Peter Malinowskis says it will become a reality for the southeast, but could be rolled out for other parts of the state that continue to struggle to get good coverage. We've worked hard to have the federal government cooperate with the state government and local government to see this $27 million upgrade to mobile phone coverage right throughout the southeast. Um, The partnership between the private sector and Telstra, local government, state government, and now we've locked in $15 million worth of federal government funding means that the South East will have dramatically improved mobile phone and data coverage across the region, which isn't just important for convenience, but also critical for economic uplift. Now that this kind of approach to be able to win federal government funding has been proved successful for now. Do you think it's something that we'll see in other regions in South Australia? Look, I think it sets a really good precedent and it's something I'm really proud of to to get all arms of government on the same page, to get private sector support from industry as well is a massive um, boost for the Limestone Coast more broadly. Um, I've made clear that the region's a priority. It's critical to the state's economic future and this type of government investment we know can actually deliver a better standard of living for people in the region. So, but look, frankly, you know, without this type of collaboration, we don't see this scale of project get up. 27 additional new mobile phone towers and data towers throughout the region. You know, you just don't achieve that unless all uh, parties contribute, and that's what we've been able to coordinate at the state level. That's the Premier speaking earlier there to Sam Bradbrook. Well, the southeast produces a lot of the state's food and fibre and ag groups have welcomed the news today as being essential to the work that they do. Robert Brokenshire is head of the South Australian Dairy Farmers Association. He joins me now. Welcome to the Country Hour. Thank you, Selena, and nice to be on your program. So this is obviously good news for farmers in the in the southeast. This uh, large-scale connectivity project is is now going to go ahead. What difference will it make for farmers in, in this part of the state? Well, I'm delighted as president of SADA to hear that this is happening and 
I'd have to congratulate both the state and federal government as well as the other partners in getting this to happen and the media. Um, it's vital now. The South East has had some terrible issues in trying to get connectivity when it comes to Wi-Fi and um, phone, etc. This will make a huge difference and I hope it's rolled out as quickly as possible. Um, we can't run our businesses today as farmers unless we have good access to mobile telephones and Wi-Fi and internet. Because it's not just about being able to make a call or send a text, is it? For, for farmers these days, uh, uh, there is so much more than what happens on farms that requires good connectivity. Well, it's now becoming an essential tool, just like a tractor or a milking machine is an example. It's actually essential to us operating our farms efficiently and effectively. And, you know, as we get more and more high-tech databases available for machinery and and cattle, um, then you need that connectivity uh, to be able to actually run your farm. So it's no longer a luxury, it's an essential. So this is good news, as we say, for the Limestone Coast, which is a large uh, dairy-producing part of South Australia, but are there other parts of, uh, of the state where you are hearing from farmers that this remains an issue, that they are still struggling to get good connections? Oh, look, it's definitely an issue, Selena. Um, as the South Australian Dairy Farmers Association president, I hear it uh, very regularly from our farmers. It comes up at discussion groups and collective bargaining groups that that's a weakness in them being able to do their business properly. And as a um, board member and a council member of Primary Producers SA, um, I've heard you know farmers as we engage with them complaining about the problems with connectivity. So this is a great first start for a big area of South Australia, namely the southeast, but it needs to be looked and replicated right across the state. This has been quite a unique project in that it is uh, industry groups, it's local councils, it's both state and federal government and the telcos as well, or one particular telco in this case, coming on board. Can you see that model uh, perhaps working elsewhere? Well, it makes sense, and I congratulate all the partners. And, you know, everyone was cooperative and they, they got their act together and they lobbied hard, and whether it's forestry, agriculture or all aspects of, of um, primary production, they got together and they've set a template that I think could be uh, replicated across the state. It's, it's working now. You know, you've got all the sign-offs. Now it just has to be built. But it was a great partnership and it's the one that should be repeated elsewhere. Robert, while we've got you, uh, we know that uh, with the rain that we've had across parts of the state in, in recent uh, days and weeks, so it depends what you're farming as to whether it's, it's rain you want at this time of the year. What about dairy farmers? Are they some of them be pretty happy to pick up some rain? Um, those that are irrigating would be happy to pick this rain up. There's no doubt about that. It's expensive to irrigate today and it's a bonus for them. It also tends to keep your dryland pastures, particularly your grasses, um, nice and healthy and alive at the crown of the plant. But for those dairy farmers, and we're one of them, and there's very many others as well, and grain growers, um, this rain's been uh, really concerning. And, you know, we, we've just started reaping grain in the Fleurier Peninsula area, and this has been, frankly, a disaster for us as far as grain goes. What does it do at this time of the year to get that much rain? Well, you know, first of all, if we got this rain in September, we'd all be smiling. We'd have plenty of hay, plenty of silage right across the state. That didn't happen. We had an incredibly dry 
September. We were told we were going to experience the super El Nino, and the only benefit I could see out of that was everyone harvesting grain would have a straightforward harvest. But while some have been fortunate to get theirs off, um, in some of the higher rainfall grain growing areas, um, we're only just starting, and this is sending the crops black. Uh, we don't know how much it will be downgraded. There will clearly be weight loss. And uh, the other concern that I hope doesn't happen is, uh, worst-case scenario, we could have uh, shot grain in the head, and that wouldn't be good. No, certainly not. Well, let's hope that that's not the case. It would take a little while to... Uh, how, how long will it take until you can sort of fully assess what the damage has been done? Oh, I, w- I would be thinking in the um, Fleurier Peninsula and um, the areas around Strathalban and so on, those uh, areas, maybe even some of the upper southeast where they haven't re- yet. We- we'll know in a week, but you can already see a lot of black tip in the grain. And, you know, it depends what happens. If we get wind and not too much humidity, then it mightn't be as bad. But, gee, the rain here in Mount Compass today has been just so heavy, it's... Uh, it's pretty scary, frankly. It's been thunderstorms for about two hours. Wow. All right. Well, Robert, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon and uh, thank you very much for filling us in. Thanks, Elena. Robert Brokenshire there, President of the South Australian Dairy Farmers Association. Well, speaking about that connectivity project, uh, where else in the state do you reckon should top the list for something like this to roll out? What regions do have the worst coverage, do you reckon? My talkback number, 1300 or that text line again, 0467 John on the text line says, just drive through the Adelaide Hills and you'll find plenty of mobile phone black spots. Uh, Lee called in on our talkback line. He says he gets frustrated that providers don't share service coverage. He seems like he says it seems like a waste to have two towers next to each other just because they are different providers. It is just going on 18 minutes to one. You with Selena Green today. Peaches, nectarines, plums, mm, they're just some of the juicy favourites on the menu at summer picnics and around the Christmas table. But this recent wet weather, ongoing issues with fruit fly, how are farmers going with getting them off the tree and onto our plates? Well, Tim Grieger, who grows stone fruit at Renmark, told Stephanie Nitschke that the season has been tracking relatively well despite these challenges. Uh, going very well. We, we're well into it, of course, now. We've been going since mid-October, what's that, about seven weeks away, and looking really good. Um, the quality's been excellent. Uh, this year we've had, you mentioned rain, we haven't had much rain at all, and not much hot weather, so it's been an ideal sort of uh, harvest period for stone fruit. So what other challenges have growers faced during the season? It's interesting. Stone fruit growing is always a challenge, and it doesn't matter which year you come into, there's a different challenge. Like last year we had... Uh, the excessive rain, a huge amount of rain which caused uh, uh, delay and uh, a lot of damage to, to stone fruit and a headache for the growers. This year, uh, with an ideal season, for some reason, we've got ripening so quick. We started about four or five days earlier than normal and uh, um, at this stage is about a week and a half ahead of schedule or ahead of what normally happens. But not only that, the ripening process has been so fast and uh, growers have reported to me a lot of losses to, uh, due to softness. Uh, up to 50% in some cases. So that's a, that's a big um, bit of a surprise. So nature has a habit of throwing all sorts of little uh, challenges at, uh, especially in the stone fruit growing field, and that's why it's, um, well, it's a difficult one. It's a challenging one, and it's, um, uh, it really tests you out. But um, the overall, you mentioned the juicy fruit. That's what people love to, to eat, and that's what we do it for. 
Indeed. Your Christmas table would be awash with stone fruit, I think, um, Tim Gregan. Um, we know what the grower gets at the gate. Is it often quite different to what we pay in stores? So how are prices looking for growers as well? Well, generally, the, the grower return price has been, been okay this year. It's, uh, it's been on par, I'd say. You're always looking for that a uh, little bit more, of course. But uh, again, a difficult uh, uh, space where when you get uh, quality uh, produce on the market, it, its price can be dragged down a bit by other produce that's not quite up to the quality you'd expect. So it's been, oh, I guess, a normal season in that regard. And, uh, and the uh, returns are critical, of course, for uh, the ongoing sustainability and viability of growers. So it's, uh, it's always that fine line or balancing factor to try and get that quality, get that price to be able to then look forward to the future. Yeah. Has that changed in recent years or have prices been relatively steady? Been pretty steady. I mean, uh, everything else seems to have gone up except <laughs> the prices returning to uh, growers. But mm. uh, you know, it's, it's that's the market, and it's um, it's a supply and demand market, and that's uh, that's a, the challenge you have to face. And I think the issue with growers is to to concentrate on quality. And it's um, you know when you when you talk about the impact of uh, losses like last season and of course this, this season, it, it makes it hard. But overall, we look forward to uh, you know putting quality fruit on the table for the consumer to enjoy. Fruit fly is still an ongoing uh, factor. Is it something now that growers have just become accustomed to and, and, and it's just a steady as she goes? Yeah, well, I think most growers have, uh, um, are well aware and familiar with the processes that, that are required, uh, the protocols that they have to follow, particularly going into sensitive markets like Adelaide and, and uh, WA. Eastern states, um, because they're endemic there, yeah, it's, it's a lot easier. But there's still always the um, secure movement requirements that we all have to follow. And we're looking forward to the day when we won't have to do that uh, in the future, when we can get eradicate the fruit fly from the region. And that's what we're working solely on. That's what growers are supporting us on uh, to achieve that point where we enjoyed the fruit fly free status for so many decades. And uh, we're going to get back to that. There's Renmark Stone Fruit Grower and Summer Fruits SA Executive Officer Tim Grieger there speaking with Stephanie Nitschke. A few more messages that are coming in around uh, your mobile connectivity issues and we're in the States a bit dodgy for that. Uh, hello to our text on the York Peninsula who says, raining and thunder still at Pines, fantastic, but... Our phone and computer connection is a total black spot on a regular basis. No amount of mention to Telstra uh, by phone uh, or at nearest shop, Kadena, two hours away is of no use. Just total jokey with the locals. This one's from Aussie at the Pines. Thank you for your text. Hello to John from Keith. Uh, He's saying Sherwood and Senior out of Keith. Absolute terrible service after the Sherwood fires. All those years ago, it was going to be fixed. And, yeah, John, I do remember a lot of talk about the, uh, the issues with a, a lack of connection out that way after those fires and a lot of talk around investment trying to uh, to address that. But sounds by John's text that it's still very much an issue around that part of the region. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. 
Now, if you're a baker, a brewer, winemaker, then yeast, it's your friend. And you probably source your yeast through a retail or commercial channel, but did you know that you can capture it naturally? Wild yeast can be a bit more unpredictable to work with, but can bring unique results, including when it comes to beer. Professor Ben Schultz is with the University of Queensland School of Chemistry and Molecular Biosciences. He's just been in Adelaide as one of the presenters at the 37th International Symposium on Yeasts, where he spoke about capturing wild yeast for beer brewing. And I asked him firstly to define define wild yeast. There's wild yeast everywhere in the environment associated with animals and, and plants and in the soil and in the water. And it's really only a very small selection of yeast species which humanity has, has managed to domesticate and use for things like beer and, and wine and, and uh, bread production over the millennia. Right. So we've got yeast strains, obviously, that are used in commercial production or we, you know, home brewers might use. These are simply other strains that haven't, as you say, been domesticated. Yeah, that's right. So it, it turns out that if, say, you take a grape harvest of a grape, um, and uh, press them up and then leave those juices to, to ferment the, the bacteria and yeast that were naturally on the surface and inside of those grapes are still then in the grape master grape juice and they'll begin to ferment that so to, to eat the sugars and produce um, ethanol, alcohol and carbon dioxide and then eventually turn that into wine. And so then at the start of that fermentation, there's a, a huge diversity of different microbes that were present on the grapes. And it turns out that there's only um, a really few of those microbes that can survive um, all the way through to the end of that fermentation. And so one of those is Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And, and that is then that, that really hardy yeast that survives all the way through that fermentation. Um, that is the yeast that has been domesticated um, and then we can use um, in a targeted way for, for wine production, but then that's also brewer's yeast and baker's yeast. Right. So the wild strains, are they not widely utilised because they don't tend to last through that process? Yeah, so it turns out that the Saccharomyces is one of the more hardier yeasts and it produces quite a lot of alcohol, of ethanol, especially in wine production. Then if you were to make wine only with Saccharomyces, it turns out to be kind of one-dimensional wine and the presence of other um, wild yeasts can make it much more flavoursome. So as far as flavour goes, if you're utilising these other sort of strains of yeast, can they be managed or can it be quite unpredictable? It, it can be very unpredictable. That's because if you like, just look at, um, at, a, at a piece of fruit, so the grapes, um, then you, you, there's no way to easily tell what microbes are on that piece of fruit. And the, the different microbes, bacteria and yeast, uh, will then potentially give really different flavours and flavour profiles to a fermented beverage if you make, make it using that but wine or if anything else um, fermented by beer. And so what um, we've done in, in our research over the last couple of years is to try and tease apart that to make that process a little bit more predictable, so to um, use microbiological techniques to not just take the pool of microbes that are present in a particular place in the environment, but to isolate the single yeasts and bacteria and then to see which ones give really interesting tasty flavours and which ones are perhaps a bit ordinary and you wouldn't you can just take it and leave it and so then we can begin to use in a more targeted way the, um, the, the species that give really interesting flavours and, and begin to use them in beverage production. 
Because at the moment, if they do, say, end up in the process, one of these other strains that you're not sort of introducing yourself, could be ended up in there accidentally, maybe spoil your brew? Yeah, they definitely could, yeah. And so that that can certainly happen via production and, and um, being sterile when making homebrew or, or craft beer or beer at a larger scale is really important. Otherwise, yeah, things can get a bit nasty and not, not taste so good and, and then that spoils the, the product. Um, for the wine production, um, by analogy, then spontaneous ferments or, or wild ferments uh, are now coming back in to be really quite popular again because of the extra nice dimensions to the flavour that you can get with those sorts of wines. But a big problem that you can have with those is that it's eventually the wine will, will get there and will taste probably pretty good, but it can be really variable in how long it takes for those ferments to proceed and finish and also in the exact flavour profiles that you get along the way. So there's lots of exciting potential, but it's a little bit risky if you don't understand what's going on. Yeah. So there are already examples of this wild process already being used? There are lots of examples of people using wild yeast to ferment wine and beer. But what's um, a little bit unusual and, and new and exciting is being able to really understand which are the species of wild yeast that are important and useful for the process and so to be able to control it. And as you say, that is uh, part of your research or your ongoing research that you're involved in and that you're presenting about to this conference in Adelaide? Yeah, that's right. Yes, so we had a a really exciting project with Newstead Brewing in in Brisbane over the last couple of years where they had the the great idea to see if they could make beer with yeast from a particular place in Brisbane, to have that sort of sense of of local physical connection to to the country um, through the, the yeast that came from there to make the beer. Um, and so it took us a while to isolate and hunt through some wild yeast that we found on the University of Queensland campus in, in Brisbane. But we've managed to find some that um, actually produced some really quite tasty beers. And so it was great to be able to collaborate with that brewery to, to make some products. I've heard a lot about this is something that consumers are very much wanting these days, whether it's wine or beer, or they, they're loving this story of, uh, of a particular place, of story behind something. This is, I guess, another way of adding that very localised um, of-place element to, to what you're producing. Absolutely, yeah. And there's other really exciting research which has been presented at, at this uh, conference as well on about how the yeast and, and bacteria on grapes are really important for terroir. So it's not just the, the geography, the geology of the place, but it's also the microbiology that, that really contributes to that sense of place. As Professor Ben Schultz, he's with the University of Queensland School of Chemistry and Molecular Biosciences, talking there about wild yeast. And Wall is from Normie, and Wall's hopped on the text line to say that many years ago, he bought a bottle of American beer made from the yeast in the brewer's beard, it was quite nice, says Wall. Well, I'm going to take your word for that. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that one. Well, uh, wow, fascinating. There you go. Uh, if you reckon you can top Wall's example, uh, the text line 0467 or give me a call 1300 The yeast from the brewer's beard. What else will they think of? Uh Finally today, Australia's largest canned vegetable producer has started importing corn from Thailand again, and that's due to a domestic shortage. As Brandon Long reports, the company says drought, bushfires and floods in Australia have led to supply issues. Two years on from dealing with supply shortages caused by natural disasters, Simplot Australia, which owns brands including Edgel, is grappling with a similar situation. 
In a statement, the company says drought and bushfires led to corn shortages in 2021. This was unfortunately followed by widespread floods across eastern Australia and the Riverina region in 2022, again resulting in supply challenges. Fresh vegetables from our Australian farming community will always be our first choice. Of course, if there simply isn't enough to go around, we might need to look further afield. The majority of Edgel products are made in Simplot's factory at Bathurst, New South Wales, by a team of over 200 people. Growers for Simplot were contacted about the shortage but declined to comment. At nearby Cowra, farmer and Lachlan Valley Water board member Ed Fagan says last year's floods had a major impact on food production. I'm not surprised that they they need to go and and uh, get processed corn out of Thailand. You'd had crops that were sort of you know at the beginning of the growing cycle, and you had crops that were or paddocks that were getting formed ready for planting. Didn't matter whether it was sweet corn or maize or whether it was other summer cropping uh, cotton example, um, and they all just got wiped out. So it took out crops that were already growing plus it delayed planting of um, of a second crop. So. That not only did that happen on the Lachlan, but it also happened on the Macquarie Valley, and it also happened down in the Riverina on the Murrumbidgee and the Murray and uh, and the Goulburn. So it, was, it impacted a, a very large area. The floods that we had last year were at the beginning of November, and there were two floods back to back on the Lachlan, about ten days apart. And the second flood was uh, the biggest since 1952. So the Wyangla Dam, which is the main dam on the Lachlan, it holds about two and a half times Sydney Harbour. And the gates were open on on the dam. Uh, they opened higher than they've ever been opened, and the the release out of Wyangal Dam was the the largest release that they've ever released out of the dam. So, what that resulted in was the largest flood on the Lachlan since 1952. Big difference between 1952 and today is the amount of development on the valley compared to before. So, the damage uh, that was resulted from that flood was significantly higher than any flood. That's gone through before. Simplot is currently undertaking a $65 million upgrade to its Bathurst manufacturing facility and a $40 million acquisition of farming land in the central west region of New South Wales. The works are anticipated to be completed this year. Mr. Fagan says the investment provided confidence to the area's irrigated agriculture industry. The investment that、uh, Simplot are putting into Bathurst gives a lot of confidence to、um, to the irrigated agriculture around this area. You know, they're not going to invest the sort of money that they're investing over there for nothing. So they've invested in land as well. They've bought a few properties down near Forbes, and they already own one here at Cowra and at Bathurst. So、um, yeah, we know that there's going to be a bit of action at Bathurst, which is going to be good. That is Cowra farmer and Lachlan Valley Water Board member Ed Fagan speaking there with Brandon Long. If you'd like to read more about this story,、uh, you can hop on the website abc.net.au/rural, and there's a story all right now that you can read, along with lots of other great stories from the ABC Rural team, including one here from South Australia around some、uh, well. Story of some kayakers who had to rescue some pelicans that had become entangled in fishing lines near the Murray Mouth.、Um, bit of a concerning incident.、Uh, some great photos to go along with this story. So hop on that website now, abc.net.au.
forward slash rule and uh, you can read away to your heart's content. Uh, coming up on your radio this afternoon, Kelly Nestor will be with you. And uh, for those of you wanting to know a bit more about the weather situation, the latest advice from the State Emergency Service and what's going on with the uh, power outages across the state, because we know there's still quite a few of you uh, without power today, uh, they'll be doing a check-in with SA Power Networks and the SES on Kelly's program this afternoon. So stick around for that. Uh, She'll also have a look at a rise in shoplifting and aggression towards retail workers. A bit of a uh, concerning trend there. So some great stuff coming up on your radio this afternoon. Uh, If you want to catch more great stuff but not on your radio, uh, you can listen at your leisure on the ABC Listen app, and that's a great way to go back and listen to anything you may have missed on the Country Hour or that you'd like to listen back to as well. That's it for me. Thank you so much for your company today. I'll be back again tomorrow and it's just going on one o'clock and time for the news. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.